here to speak to us. She was in the first service. And if you would like to get a CD of the first service, uh, they're out there. Also, you can go online. The podcast is there as well. This is a great opportunity um, for us to have her here. Beth is the co-director of Back-to-Back Ministries. Um, I can't remember a time in my history here in Ohio or in Cincinnati without Beth Guckenberger as a part of my life or my family's life in ministry and friendship. Um, you know, we were in ministry together early on when I was a youth pastor. She was heavily involved there with the youth ministry, obviously moved on to uh, be in Mexico, the director of the Mexico mission we have there. And now they are the co-directors of all the back-to-back ministries. Beth has authored many books, and they are out in the foyer, on the table out in the foyer. So love you to go out and pick those up as well. Um, God has truly been blessing uh, the ministry here uh, through back-to-back ministries through Todd and Beth for many, many years. And I know this morning is going to be a very, very enjoyable time for you. So if you would even now get, your, get, get a pen out and take some notes, uh, you're going to want to do that. And the exciting thing for me having her here this morning is we're going to be kicking off a series um, starting next week going through Jonah and Habakkuk, so kind of the Old Testament. And I'm excited that she's talking about the things she's talking about this morning because it'll, it'll get you all jazzed up for that series coming up next week as well as we go through the Old Testament. So I want to uh, ask Beth to come up here, and I want you to give her a warm welcome from Grace Chapel. And uh, gosh, when the power went out, I thought, they're trying to make me feel at home. That happens all the time there. Um, I, was, uh, I started this talk, actually, this morning in the first service, and we're going to pick up where we left off. If any of you are here from first service, the first four minutes I'm going to repeat from the first service so that they kind of get the context. And then the last 25-ish minutes will be new material, just in case you're like, man, I thought it was going to be something different, and I start out the same. That's for your information. Um, about a year or so ago, I was able to travel to Israel with a Bible teacher named Ray Vanderlaan, who um, I've been watching his videos that the world may know if you're familiar with them or focus on the family. I've been watching and studying um, the way in which he had rightly divided the word for over 15 years when I had the opportunity to travel there with him for a few weeks. Uh, it was life-changing, to say the least. Every time I get in front of a crowd of any size, I talk about the things that I learned while I was there. But just in case you wondered if you're, like, going to watch my vacation slides here today, um, if I had to choose again between going to the geography of Israel and learning the things that I learned there or sitting in a classroom and having the exact same content, I would choose the classroom. The, the actual space, I don't want you to think that you can't understand what I'm saying without having gone there or that I now think that everybody needs to go there. I just learned some really unbelievable insights from Scripture from this teacher while I was physically there, and I'm going to share some of those with you this morning. Um, Okay, that's enough of that background. Every single um, talk I give, I start with the same verse. If you have your Bibles, open up to Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen to me as I teach it to you. Joshua 1, 8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But meditate on it day and night so that you can be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Well, the word inside of that verse, the word meditate, meditate on it day and night, in the original language is the word in Hebrew of Hagah, H-A-G-A-H. And Hagah, if you think back to your high school English classes, Hagah is a Hebrew onomatopoeia. 
Remember those words, onomatopoeias, the words that sound like what they are? So in English, we have onomatopoeias like pop sounds like what it is, right? And hiss sounds like what it is. And boom sounds like what it is. Well, Hagah is a Hebrew onomatopoeia, and it literally means the sound a lion makes as it consumes its prey. The sound of a lion consuming its prey. So no good person who can speak Hebrew would say Hagah the way I'm saying Hagah. That sounds like your kitten eating its kibbles and bits or something. You know, Hagah really should be sounded like ha ha Like it should sound like a lion does when he consumes its prey. So read that, that definition of that word back in the verse with me. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but consume it like a lion would its prey so that you can be careful to do everything that's written in it, and then you'll be prosperous and successful. When I hear the word meditate, I think like in the morning for a few minutes, think on a few verses. But the author of this book wanted us to know, thinking on that verses for a few minutes every morning is not going to cut it. Because there is constant opposition to the life that God's called you for. There is a constant pressing in against the calling that God has asked you to do. And it is only through the consumption of the word of God, like a lion would its prey, that we have the weapon inside of us that we can use to wield and cut the path for the, for the way that God has made for us. So this morning, for the next 30 minutes, I pray that we consume this like a lion would its prey so that we can be careful to do what it's written in it the rest of the day and the rest of all of our days. Okay, I, I kind of like feedback, so I'm going to ask you some questions every once in a while. And here's my first one. Anybody know what the largest mountain in the world is? Okay, like Kilimanjaro or Everest, right? People kind of say those. The largest mountain in the world is a, is a mountain called Mauna Loa, and it's found in Hawaii. And the reason it doesn't get a lot of credit is because here's the water line, and most of Mauna Loa is underneath the ocean line. And all you can see from the land is the top of it. This book has 66 um, books inside of it. 39 of them are from the Old Testament. 27 of them are from the New. And the truth is, most of us spend most of our time in the 27 books of the New Testament because it's easier to understand and it's a little bit faster to get through and you don't have to work so hard to have something to hold your hat on to. But when we just spend time in the 27 books of the New Testament, we're just looking at the top of the mountain. We're not getting the whole picture. So part of what I want to do today, and, and grab the CD from the first service because we kind of build up to it in the first service, but part of what I want to continue to do today is look at the base of the mountain and see how it relates to what, God's, to what Jesus came to teach in the New Testament and then get a full picture of that teaching. Everything that Jesus talked about, every single word he said, every place he went, every action he did is tied to something that he prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two little examples to get us started off here before we, we move into something about reconciliation. The first one is, how many times are we supposed to forgive other people? Seven times 70. How many of you have done the math before, right? Especially in, in relation to specific relationships. Like, I'm sure this is the 490th time, and next time I'm off the hook. When you read something that Jesus says or does that just doesn't quite make sense to you, it is a clue that you're just looking at the top of a mountain and there's more to the story than what you know, than what you read in that, in that New Testament verse. So in relation to 7 times 70, if you have your Bibles, open it up to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we haven't gotten very far in the story of life. There's not very many characters in it. You probably know them all by name. We had Adam and Eve first, and they had a set of sons named Cain and Abel. Cain was the bad one. That's where we get that phrase, raising Cain. Cain, of course, killed Abel. 
and did all the bad things that Cain did. Seven generations after Cain comes a guy named Lamech. And we're going to read for a minute in Genesis chapter 4. Let's look at verses 23 and 24, a little bit about Lamech. Genesis chapter 4. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for injuring me. For if Cain has been avenged seven times, then Lamech is going to be avenged 77 times. When Jesus told us to forgive seven times 70, he was saying, I know you know the story of Cain. And as thirsty as the line of man is for vengeance, I want that same kind of thirst in the, in the sons of God for righteousness and for forgiveness. That's why he said seven times 70. Here's another quick one. Think about the story when the adulterous woman was about to get stoned by all those mean people. What did Jesus do? Not, well, not what he said, but what did Jesus do? He wrote in the dirt. There's an example of like, I have no idea what that means. Whenever you find something at the top of the mountain that you don't understand what that means, that doesn't make sense to you, he doesn't do a single thing on accident, not then and not today, then you can ask yourself, okay, I know somewhere in the bottom of the mountain or in the first 39 books of the Bible, he's going to talk about writing in the dust because that's what he did. He wrote in the dust. If you open up your Bible to Jeremiah 17, verse 13, It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. When he wrote down to write in the dust, he was writing the names of the people that had the rocks in their hands. And the kind of people that had rocks in their hands so sure of themselves that they were better than she was are certainly the kind of people who knew what the major prophet of Jeremiah had written about him. And they dropped their stones and they walked away. That is two examples. I remember halfway through the trip, I raised my hand to the Bible teacher, and I'm like, excuse me, I heard this like thing one time, I'm sure in a sermon or something, that, that Jesus fulfilled 400 prophecies from the Old Testament. Maybe at that point in the trip, I had learned 40. And I'm thinking, 10 times this many, I can't even imagine. Is it true? Could you confirm for me that Jesus fulfilled 400 prophecies from the Old Testament? And he kind of looked at me like, where the heck have you been? And he said, well, to date we've identified over 4,000 times in which Jesus has tied his actions or words to the Old Testament prophets. So I just told you two in the last four minutes, and there's 3,998 more times where we could tie the actions or words of Jesus to the Old Testament. Let the fun begin. Okay. Uh, If you were in first service or later, remember this when you listened to first service, we talked a little bit about the cup the cup that Jesus offers um, in the Last Supper, the cup that offers, it's a symbol between a a man who wants to marry a a woman. When he offers the cup at the Last Supper, he's essentially engaging himself, the bride of the church, to himself. But we're going to talk now in second service a little bit about the bread. And there's a word I want you to know. You can go home and Google this word. I don't know where my eraser is, but just, it's called sulha. Sulha is a Middle Eastern concept that means the covenantal table of reconciliation. And you can, you can, if you Google sulha, you can see that in the 1990s sometime, the New York Times wrote an article about a modern-day sulha that happened between a Palestinian and a Jewish family. It's a concept that is as ancient as the days. In fact, we're going to look at some sulhas from Genesis to Revelations. And it goes all the way um, to present day. But in a sulha, here's what happens. Let's pretend two people are in conflict, and let's just pretend Jeff and I are in conflict, because that's fun. And let's pretend in Jeff and my fight that I have done something wrong to hurt him. 
typically what happens when two people are in conflict, the person that has been harmed waits around for the person that did the harming to apologize. And we all know that Jeff could wait the rest of his life before I come say sorry to him. Maybe I'm still in sin and I don't want to say sorry. Maybe I have offended him and I didn't even recognize it. Maybe, I mean, maybe I felt provoked by him. Maybe, like, all kinds of things that can happen that can prevent the person who did the wronging to initiate reconciliation with the one they wronged. But that's what we usually do. We wait for someone to come and apologize. And then the person like Jeff, who's been the one wronged, might spend the rest of his life waiting for that. And who of the two of us is the one that's in bondage? It's the one waiting for the reconciliation. So in a sulha, this whole thing is flipped upside down. In a sulha, the person that has been wronged initiates reconciliation with the person that's done the wronging. Because here's the other thing that happens. If Jeff and I were in a fight, let's pretend all you all were on my side. And all you all were on Jeff's side. And no longer is the conflict between Jeff and I and how many minutes I got to preach in the second service. It's about all of you all now being mad at all of them because whose side are you on anyway, right? And families get divided that way and nations get divided that way and absolutely churches become divided that way. Conflict is a tool of the enemy. So in a sulha, what happens is Jeff would come to me and initiate reconciliation. And the minute that food or drink is consumed between the two conflicting parties, the one that has been wronged is announcing to the wronger that that which you've done against me, I'm going to hold against you no longer. And, and it's usually done in a public setting so that the parties who have gotten themselves involved in the conflict, I witness that reconciliation, and then it no longer is a stronghold between those groups of people. So let's think of some. I'm going to give you some examples from the, from the Bible. I'm going to say from Genesis to Revelation of some sulhas that you'll recognize in Scripture. The first one is the story of Jacob. Jacob's story comes to us um, in Genesis 31. Jacob's the guy that like worked seven years for the girl he loved and then had to work seven more for the one he really liked. Remember that story? The, the wronger in that story is Laban. Laban is the father-in-law who tricked him seven years into the gig and made him work 14 years for who he really wanted. He's the, he's the Beth in the story. He's the wronger. Jacob is the one that has been wronged. He's the wrongy. 14 years later, he, Jacob is free to leave. He's paid his debt. He and his wives and his cattle and his children and his servants and all those people take off up into the hills. Laban changes his mind. He's like, just kidding, don't want you all to leave. And he goes chasing up after them. In Genesis chapter 31, verses 54 and 55, what happens when Laban catches up to them? Now, I'll tell you what could happen. Think to put in your brain a reality television show, right? When Laban catches up to Jacob, Jacob could have turned to him like, are you kidding me? You ruined my life. Do you understand? I have these people I don't even want with me anymore. You know, he, he could have gone on and on. And his whole family would have heard half of us are a mistake and we're unhappy with it. Their whole family could have been defined by this event that Laban did against him. But when, Jacob caught, when uh, Laban caught up with Jacob, this is uh, Genesis 31, verses 54 and 55. It says, Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice, a food sacrifice there in the hill country, and he invited all his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And then in the next verse, 55, early the next morning, Jacob, or I'm sorry, early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and he blessed them, and he turned and left home. When Jacob caught up to Laban, Laban mm, decided, I'm going to have a sulha with you. 
and our family will no longer be defined by that which you've done against me. And as a result of the sulha that he had there in the presence of his relatives, Laban was free the next morning to bless that family as they went on their way. And if you keep reading the story of Jacob, some pretty unbelievable things happened through their family line. Think about the story of Joseph. He's the guy with all the coat of many colors that got thrown into the well by his brothers. Clearly, in that story, Joseph, the guy in the well, is the one that's been wronged, sold into slavery. The brothers were the ones that did the wronging. What happened years later during the famine? Who offered the sulha? Who gave food to his brothers in the time of a famine? It was the one that had been wronged. He offered them a sulha, thus freeing all of that community from the guilt and the pain of that which they have suffered to, his, to, to Joseph. And then, man, did they have an incredible story in the aftermath of that. Think with me the story of the prodigal son and father. In the prodigal son and father story, what would have happened is in that world, those families would have lived in what are called insulas or communities of common purse. So when the son went to the father and said, hey, I want half my inheritance, he couldn't have like liquidated his 401k and said, here you go, hon. I paid a penalty, but you can have it. Instead, he would have had to knock on the door of everybody in his community with whom he shared every one of his resources and asked them for a portion of his, of his purse back, saying, in essence, my son would rather my money than my life, because this would only naturally happen if I died. All those people would have been really bad at that son. That son went away. He did all the really wrong things he did. Then he turned around and he came home. You know that story. It's the only time that God ran. Middle Eastern men don't run. He pulled up his tunic. He ran after him. They embraced. The two of them had reconciliation, but the moment was not over. What did he do after that? He went and killed a fattened calf, invited everybody in the insula to a meal. When he consumed that food in the presence of the one that had wronged him, he was announcing to everybody in that community, that one that has hurt me, I will hold against him his, his sin no longer. Representing, of course, the Father. Think with me. Well, first of all, you know in the Bible where it says Jesus is always eaten with tax collectors and sinners? I think he was like stool hauling his way through every day. I think he was freeing people left and right from the things which they had spent their life doing against him. Think with me the story of Peter. Peter denied Christ three times. He clearly was the wrong that wronged in the story. And the person that he wronged was Christ. In fact, when Peter denied Christ for the third time, he ran away. Isn't it the Mark, refer- the Mark account that says later when Jesus, or Luke, I'm sorry, when Jesus said, go get the disciples and Peter? Like, Peter wasn't even a disciple anymore. He had done the worst thing he could possibly do. He denied the very Christ that had died for him. But Jesus was looking at his whole life at one time. He knew that Peter had some incredible adventures left to live. Namely, 50 days later when he was about to be a part of the day of Pentecost. So what did he invite Peter to do there on the beach? What did they eat? Fish. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he invited Peter to a sulha. And he said, not just to Peter, but to all the rest of the disciples who were like, I wonder if he's still in the club. That which he has done against me, I'm going to hold against him no longer. He is now free to go live the life I wrote for him. And praise the Lord he did, because Peter did some really cool things. Okay, because I said I wanted to read them from Genesis to Revelation, open up your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3:20. Oh, come, come on, read it. Look it up. It's the last book in the Bible. It's an easy one to find. Revelation 3.20 says this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
If I was right in Revelation, I might have said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, he can come in and I will forgive him his sins. Or I will be at peace with him forever. Or I will invite him into eternal life. Or I would have said like a whole bunch of things besides I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It doesn't even make sense unless you understand the context of a sulha. Jesus is saying, I'm standing right here and I'm knocking. You come in with me. We will meet together at the covenantal table of reconciliation. And then you who have done wrong to me, the minute you consume this bread or this drink, that which you have done against me, I'm going to hold against you no longer. Isaiah 25, I love this passage. Right in the middle of the Bible, one of the major prophets. I encourage you to read it with me. Isaiah 25 Verses 6 to 8. Write that down in your notes. Go read that later. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Isaiah is a prophet. Jeff's going to talk to you about one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk, coming up. This is a major prophet. He's a prophet talking about the things that are yet to come. Isaiah 25, he says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. Which, let's just go back really fast to the story in the 1990s in the New York uh, paper between the Palestinian and the Jewish family, their sulha occurred over a cup of coffee. One of them killed the other deaf son who didn't hear a horn honking as he crossed the road. They sulhaed over a cup of coffee. When Jesus invites us to the banquet in the sky, it's going to be a feast, a rich feast for all peoples. No cup of coffee here. It's going to be a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers the nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is the sulha that he's inviting us to. So go with me for a minute to the Last Supper. Jesus is in the Last Supper there with his disciples the Thursday before the Friday he was going to die. It happened to fall the year that Jesus was uh, crucified that day on the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. If you know anything about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, leaven represented sin. So they had been celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the bread without sin, in anticipation for one day when when God would send a sacrifice for them without sin that would cover their own sin. Jesus held up the feast of the unleavened bread bread, and he followed a tradition that had been going on for a hell of a lot longer than Jesus had. It's a story from the bottom of the mountain. What would happen, and it still happens today during the feast of the unleavened bread, if you have any Jewish friends or family, they would take a piece of bread and the head of the household would rip off a corner of it. This is called the afikomen. They would hide the afikomen at the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the head of the household. It represented the one that we are long awaiting for, the one that we cannot yet see, the one that will come to us eventually. At the end of the meal, what would happen is sometimes they'd let the children go find the afikomen, and sometimes the head of the household himself would go back to where he hid it, and he would bring it out. And then they would take it, and they would rip it. They rip it, still present tense, into many, many pieces. And then everybody at the table has a piece of it. Feels a little bit like communion, doesn't it? And that would represent the one that they've been waiting for, the one without sin that is coming to them, that they can all partake in. So when Jesus ripped off the edge of the bread and he held it up at the Last Supper, what did he say? This is my body, broken for you. Now do this thing in remembrance of me. I am the afikomen. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the long-awaited sacrifice without sin you have been preparing for for years. Now, I invite you, do this, break this up, take this now. 
I am the one that has been wronged. You are the one that's done the wronging. I invite you to my covenantal table of reconciliation. Consume this bread and the minute it goes inside of you. The things which you have done against me, I will hold against you no longer. I have written a story for you that is the most wild adventure you could ever imagine. And if you define yourself by the events that have happened to you in the past, you will not be free to fully embrace that which is coming in the future. Take the sulha and experience with me all that we have yet to do. Amen? Okay. Hello. I am from Mexico. We get lots of feedback when I preach, so can I get a little amen? Amen. There you go, people. There you go. I could just go on about the Sulha. I really want today to give you a taste of some of this, and I want you to go home and scour the scriptures for other Sulhas. I want you to go home and think to yourself, who has wronged me that when I think about it paralyzes me? And how is it stopping me from embracing what God still has? Okay. Uh, will you go to the next, the, go to the slide for me? I want you to picture with me. Okay. Here's Jerusalem. Big circle. Around Jerusalem, there's a great big wall. The wall would protect the city from all the people that would come against it. You got into the city through certain gates that were around the wall. There's all kinds of them. This is an example of the king's gate. Um, there's a picture of it. Um, there would be a, the eastern gate was the believer's gate. There was an unclean gate. There was all kinds of gates. When, uh, think, go with me to the story of Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday, Jesus was up at the top of a hill about to go down it cross through what's called the Kidron Valley, and then enter up into Jerusalem, having to go through some gate in order to get into the town. Now, this is like the Christian's like favorite story, right? Because this is when people finally understand he is who he said he was, and they get the little palm leaves, and Hosanna, 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 and that whole bit, right? Well, if you, if you listen to that story, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I don't know why. I never asked anybody what that word meant. I think because we sing it in praise songs, I just assumed it meant like, Oh, praise him. But it doesn't. It's actually a bit of a battle cry. It's like a war cry that's like, Go, you are the king. Go get him. Something like that. If you do any research, I know some of you in here told me after first service you like researching this stuff, go read about the Masada. You can hear all about how Hosanna was all over the Masada, the Jewish fortress in those times. But... It says in, in two of the accounts that Jesus was crying when he was going down that mountain. And I'm thinking, I, I'm, I'm sure I just must have thought to myself, he was crying because there weren't more people there. He's crying because finally they got it, right? These are people who had been oppressed by Herod, oppressed, literally oppressed by Herod. And they finally recognized that this is the king of the Jews. He is not the king of the Jews. So now, Hosanna, go in there. No wonder he was crying. He didn't come to go Hosanna. That was never his intention. You can read all kinds of exciting research that literally would take me the rest of the morning to unload for you. But listen to me. People believe, scholars believe, researchers believe. Look at this website, followtherabbi.com. I can give you lots of other websites after the service. But when Jesus went down the hill, crossed through the Kidron Valley, which we'll talk about in a minute, that people were lined up for him to enter into the king's gate. Because they recognized that he was the new king. But here's what happened instead. Go to the next slide. 
Oh, boy. This is the wall. This is the wall around Jerusalem. There is, is there another picture? Or is this the only one? See, this is a close-up of it. See that tiny little black gate right in the middle of it? That is, like right underneath the thing that's kind of on the wall, that's called the sheep gate. This was the week of Passover, one of the times of the year that the Jewish population had to come to the capital, Jerusalem, in order to kill a, a lamb to celebrate what, what happened during the days of Passover. That's the story of Moses. Let my people go. All those crazy plagues. The last plague was that an angel of death was to come and kill the firstborn son of every family. The Jewish people were to put blood on their door frame so the angel of death would pass by the Jewish doors and only kill the firstborn of the Egyptian families. When Pharaoh found his Egyptian son dead, that's when he let them go in the parting of the Red Sea. Ever since that day when the angel of death passed over the door... They have celebrated Passover by slaughtering a lamb and, and remembering what it is that God did to save their people in that time. This was the week of Passover. There were hundreds of thousands of sheep that had to be slaughtered for, for representing the entire Jewish population. And those sheep would enter into the old city through that little gate called the Sheep Gate. So I, what happens with Jesus? There's all kinds of passages. I should just read them to you right now into the record here. Look at John 12:13. all kinds of passages. Jesus went down the, the Palm Sunday gate, crossed through the Kindred Valley, and didn't go into the, the king's gate. Instead, he entered in through the sheep gate. So imagine with me right now, a hundred thousand sheep, 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 Lamb of God. Sheep, 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 sheep. He was saying to them, I did not come here to conquer. My agenda from day one has been to come here to die as the sacrifice that you have been waiting for. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go to the next slide right there. This is right around the corner-ish from Jerusalem, just not very far. It's a great big Greek uh, ruin. And you can't go into a Greek ruin, ruin and not be impressed because the Greeks, they did everything really big, right? They had big coliseums, and they had big bathhouses, and they had big libraries, and they had big roads, and they had big chariots, and they had big everything. They just did everything so impressive. And you walk through this ruins, and you're like, I mean, I was thinking, like, golly, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have scientific calculators. They didn't have, like, how did they do all this architecture and engineering? And it is so impressive. And they have these roads I was walking on right there with some friends. And they had to be really big. You know why? Because these big chariots had to go right down the middle of them. And this is where Jesus was standing when he said what? Wide is the road that leads to destruction. But go back to the other one. But narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. You want to be a follower of Christ. Do not be impressed by the things that man can do. The road that leads to that kind of life is destruction. You want to be impressed by something? Follow me into the sheep gate and give your life in order. Lose your life in order, in order to find it. This is what it means to follow after me. Amen? Oh, thanks. That was a little better. Okay, let's go back to the Kidron Valley with me for a minute. <laughs> like my big picture of Jerusalem. Okay. 
I'm going to shorten it so I can draw. Here's Jerusalem. Here's like the Kidron Valley. And here's the hill that he went through to go right through it. Hundreds of thousands of sheep being killed in the city. No good sewage system. So what's happening is all those sheep are being slaughtered. There's blood everywhere, right? The blood comes down out of the city. It's going to fall down into the valley. Inside of the Kidron Valley was going to be resting all kinds of sheep blood. It's just the natural thing that was going to happen with that geography and that time, with that kind of technology and those kinds of utilities, and that's just natural. So when Jesus went down the hill on that donkey and he had to get into the city, he would have had to cross through the Kidron Valley and literally walk through some blood. And it would be an allusion or a reference to what he did in Genesis chapter 15. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Genesis chapter 15. It's the story of Abraham. And God made some promises to Abraham, right? He's going to have as many descendants as stars of the sky. They're going to come through his firstborn son. He's going to give him the land. He's got some great promises for Abraham. Through those, the way that in which two parties in Middle Eastern times back then and still today would seal a covenant between two parties, which again, if this is interesting to you, there is a mountain of research about this information. They would seal it through what they called a blood path covenant. Back in the days of Abraham, you can read in Genesis 15 that God tells him, instructs him to cut open several animals to split them in half, except for the birds. They each sat on each side. But these big animals, he would split in half. Then between the two split halves of these animals would run blood. And when two parties were making an agreement on land or war or women or cattle or whatever they were making an agreement on, the two parties would come together and they would walk through the blood path covenant together, essentially announcing to each other and to all the family and bystanders that were watching, if I break my end of the covenant... Your family can pay the price with my blood and there'll be no retaliation. You can have my life if I break the, if I break this deal and vice versa. Today what will happen is they'll cut open their wrists a little bit and they'll mingle their blood. If they have any kind of resources at all, they'll put a little bit of precious metal in that scar. Uh, if they don't have any resources, they'll use ashes from a fire. It, it seals that blood path covenant even still today in the Middle East. So when God made a covenant to Abraham... In Genesis 15, all those great things he's going to do for Abraham, he knew he needed to seal that covenant with the, with the blood path. So he asks Abraham to cut it open. Now, I'm like I'm picturing myself like Abraham. I'm like cutting the animals together, preparing the blood path, thinking to myself, I know how my two feet are walking through this blood path, but like you're God, I have no idea what it looks like for you to walk through a blood path covenant. But God knew that Abraham would never be able to keep his end of the bargain. He would never be able to be in perfect relationship with God. So God, in his mercy, you can read again in Genesis 15, he puts Abraham to sleep. Then he walks through the blood path covenant on behalf of himself, the perfect God who will keep his promises. And he walks through the blood path covenant on behalf of Abraham. And it says he does it in the form of a fire pot. God represents himself as fire all throughout scripture, right? The burning bush, the pillar of fire in the desert, um, the tongues of fire in Pentecost, and Revelation. We can read that he represents himself as fire all the time. In fact, this was called a fire pot, which in the days of Abraham, the way that fire pots were used, and, and still really until probably about a generation ago, they would use fire pots at the end of a day when they were ready to go to bed. They would gather some of the coals from the fire. They would stick it in this fire pot so it would stay 
fire potty all night long. And in the morning they would take those coals and restart the next fire, which is why in Proverbs 31 they talk about a woman who doesn't let her fire go out. A woman who's always prepared for that which will come on the next day. It's also, think about that verse, it's twice. It's in the Gospels and it's also in Proverbs 22 that says, uh, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, right? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That all makes all the sense in the world with the Jesus that I know and love. But the next part's confusing. And in doing so, you'll what? Heap burning coals on his head. That kind of sounds like damnation. That kind of sounds like I'm going to hurt him. Unless you understand that fire represents the presence of God. And in doing so, you will bring my presence on his head. That sounds exactly like what God wants to do in our relationships between our enemies. He wants us to bring... He wants us to bring his presence into that relationship through giving them that which they want and need but don't deserve, food or drink, which I love that. Okay, that was like a little P.S. So think with me, the Blood Path Covenant. Christ walks through the Blood Path Covenant in essence with Jeremiah, I mean with uh, Abraham. The minute that Christ walked through the Blood Path Covenant on behalf of Abraham, he sealed the fate that was going to happen to him on the cross because he... He walked on our behalf, and we cannot keep that relationship with him. And so the punishment for not keeping up your end of a covenant is death by blood. He, the minute he walked through that, he, he sealed his deal on the cross. And when he walked down that, that Palm Sunday, and he walked right through that Kidron Valley, and he shuffled his feet through the blood down there in the bottom of the valley, he was remembering, oh yeah, I did this once. And now I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. And I'm going to go through the sheep gate for you. I'm going to go through the sheep gate for you. It's why one of my favorite verses is in Genesis 22.5. I've, mem- I've like circled it about a bunch of times because it's a little bit later in the story when the promises begin to come through and Jeremiah and uh, Abraham excuse me, has Isaac, his son, and then he's been asked to sacrifice his son, right? And so he walks three days' walk with one servant, a donkey, his son, and himself to Mount Moriah, where he's about to go up to the top and he's going to have to sacrifice his son. In Genesis 22, verse 5, they get to the, well, verse 4, it says, On the third day Abraham looked up and he saw the place he was going to in the distance. Verse 5, he said to his servants, I want you to stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship... He knew that God had already asked him to sacrifice his son. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Have you ever been at the bottom of a mountain, a metaphorical mountain, and you know that God has asked something of you, but you you just you you know in your spirit He's made promises. This sixty-six book of the Bible is of promises for you he's going to come to you and hear you and lift you out and make you a home and execute true justice on your behalf he's going to he's going to fight for you and and give you peace and thousands of promises he's made for you when you find yourself at the bottom of a mountain and you think man alive it sounds like i'm supposed to go up there and sacrifice him have the faith of abraham that says we're going to go up there but when we're done we are going to come back. He knew that Isaac was going to come back because he knew that God walked through a blood path covenant on his behalf and he knew that God could not break his promise. Amen to all that. I like all that. Yes. 
ever since the days of Abraham, twice a day at 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, the, the, the priests would splash on the altar that was in whatever temple was in the middle of the community that, those, that they lived in. They would splash blood on the temple altar daily to remember the promise, the blood path promise that God made to Abraham, and they would blow the shofar. So no matter where you were in the village, if you weren't present at the temple at the two times that the priest would throw the blood on the altar, you could hear the shofar in the middle of your chores, in the middle of your working, and you would know, oh yeah, God made a blood path prominent to Abraham and his descendants, and I am a recipient of that promise. Coming is the day of the promised land. And where our people will be as many as the stars in the sky. Coming is that day. Those two times of the day was 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Fast forward with me to the days of Jesus. Jesus was, was nailed to the cross at what time of the day? 9 o'clock when the shofar blew. And what time of the day did he take his very last breath? At 3 o'clock. You can read it in all four accounts of the gospel. As the shofar blew, he took his very last breath as they were splashing the altar, the altar with blood somewhere in that town. And he, he said, what? It's, it's finished. We don't need to wait any longer. I am here. This is my body. I broke for you. Now do this today in remembrance of me. That which you have done against me, I will now hold against you no longer god's timing is perfect what he could have died at like 225 he could have died at like 307 he could have died at like 130 you nobody would have blamed him four and a half hours into the whole thing if he would have just said this is fine he had perfectly orchestrated the timing of his death to line up with that which he'd been doing with abraham since the days of the blood path covenant his timing is perfect And isn't that our number one complaint with him? Gosh, we don't like it when we feel like his timing is off. You think he could orchestrate the timing of the crucifixion and not orchestrate the timing of your day, of your agenda, of your future, of your relationships, of what he's doing for you? I want to finish with this. Go back with me to the let my people go story, right? So, Pharaoh... The angel of death did not pass over his door. In fact, it took, the, it took his firstborn son. He was sick and tired at that point of these crazy Jews and the ways in which they had suddenly complicated his life so much it came into his own home. And he said, fine, go, 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 go. All of you, go, go, go. The Jews that were living there and under his reign at that time had been slaves their whole life. Their parents had been slaves their whole life. Grandparents had been slaves their whole life. They had been nothing but slaves for as long as they could remember. Slaves, 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 slaves. Finally, that who had enslaved them said, get out of here, go, 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 you can go. And there's no, like, text messaging, right? There's no, like, internet, CNN. Like, how did they all know they could leave? How, what did that look like? In, in my brain, there's, like, a town crier, right? He's, like, running around going, like, we can go, we can go, we're free to go, you know, and, and they're like, where? We haven't been anywhere else but here. Where, where do we go? Where do we... I mean, they, they headed towards the sea, like clearly a barrier on their way out of town. I'm thinking if I was, gosh, if I was one of those people and I'm like thinking, man, I'm about to go someplace I can't picture. I don't know where it is. I don't know how long it's going to get there. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I'm looking around my house. I'm never coming back here. I'm free. What am I going to do? 
what would I pack with myself? I might be tempted to take like an extra pair of shoes, a kilo of like flour. I, don't, I mean, what would you take to some place that you can't picture that God has freed you to go to? Go to? Well, they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and the whole thing parts, something they can't even imagine is going to happen. And read with me in your Bibles in Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus 15, 19. Listen, listen to what happens. They get across the Red Sea, and Pharaoh, of course, changes his mind, and all his people go chasing up after them. And then the abyss, or the large body of water, crawls over top of them, right? This is Exodus chapter 15, verse 19. When Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, because they all swallowed them back up, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites, they walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, verse 20, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, she took a tambourine in her hands, and then all the women followed her with their own tambourines and dancing, and it goes on to say what they sang. I'm not so sure I would have packed a musical instrument on my way out of town. I'm not so sure I would have thought, okay, 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 I don't know where I'm going, I don't know I'm going to be there, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know where gonna, how long it's going to take to get there, I don't know what I need, I'm going to take my musical instrument. But here's what I've committed to in these days. I've committed to having a faith like Miriam, that in anticipation of God's movement on my behalf, I'm going to be prepared and ready to praise him at a moment's notice. That I'm going to pack with me a tambourine on the edge of a map where I don't know what adventures left for me. I don't, I don't know how you're going to fix this. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what, who's going to be there. I don't know what we're going to do. We get there. I don't know any answer to any single question, but I'm ready. I'm ready with my tambourine in my hand. I'm ready for the moment I see God move on behalf of his people, and he will every time. If you hear nothing else, hear this today. God always gets his way. When he moves on behalf of you in his perfect 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock timing, when he moves on your behalf, raise your tambourine in the air and lead everybody around you in praise and worship. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we just are touching the scratching the surface of understanding what you have prepared for us. We're just at the edge of 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 discovering how you have prepared the life we are living since the beginning of time. When you walked through that blood path covenant, you were thinking of us. You were thinking of all the ways in which we wrong you and all the moments when we would need a sulha to restore our relationship with you, to then not be defined by the things that have happened to us and from us and be free to embrace all the things that are yet to come. Lord, even when we get free and we start walking in the direction that you have for us, Fear often stops us, the desire to prepare for ourselves a perfect scenario and to be mad when you don't follow our plan. Lord, it just is ridiculous. May Grace Chapel in this community be a people that packs their tambourine, that at a moment's notice when they watch you move and part the metaphorical Red Sea for them in their workplace, in their school classrooms, in their neighborhood, in their immediate family, in their extended family, in this church body, in the outreach that they do, when you make a way for them that they would be there prepared and ready to lead 
whoever is in the listening audience in a song of praise. You get all the glory, Lamb of God. You get all the glory, Lamb of God. We follow you willingly through the sheep gate. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.